Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine and I will share with you their stories, their expertise and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Dr. Nina Fuller-Chevelle. Nina is a medical doctor, scientist and educator specialising in women's health and integrative cancer support. She's unbelievably well qualified and hugely knowledgeable and this was a real treat to get to speak to her. So without further ado, Nina, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me Ben. It is such a pleasure to have you on. I've been following your work for quite some time now. Oh, thank you. It's lovely to know that we've been noticed. <laughs> 100%. And to set the scene for some of the listeners who might not be familiar with your work, it'd be great to know why you developed an interest in cancer and also this, this um, let me repeat that. To set the scene, it'd be great to know why you developed this interest in cancer and also women's health. So good, very, very good question. Um, I think I've obviously been interested in healthcare for a very long time. And um, as you probably know, I have quite a few degrees under my belt in general. So I actually started life off as a scientist, not, not dissimilar to you, Ben. And so my original degree was natural sciences. And then I studied nutrition. And then medicine was actually my third degree. Wow. And I've acquired a few postgrads in integrative medicine and all sorts of other things since then. In terms of how I developed the interest, I think women's health has been always in the forefront of my mind, not just because I'm a woman, but because actually having been through several experiences, seeing my patient have experience in healthcare that have made it quite challenging for them has made me very passionate about it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I think that at the moment, the way we've made healthcare quite reductionist in a way, in terms of the biomedical model, has made it very difficult for women who are experiencing chronic complex issues that are multi-system to be able to express their needs and get those needs addressed mm -hmm. instead of being put into little tick box buckets. So that's something that I've seen in clinic as I was working in an HS doctor and I see in private practice now. And, and I think we need to change the way that we approach healthcare for these sorts of cases instead of trying to have lots of people, lots of cook, lots of cooks in this part, but actually no one has a clue about the overall picture. And I think that definitely needs to change for us. From the cancer side, in a way, that's an easy thing to do uh, because I've had breast cancer myself. Right. So I was diagnosed with a grade three HER2 positive breast cancer at the ripe old age of 33. Uh, well, I had a three and a half year old daughter. Um, so trying to navigate cancer treatment as a parent, as a medical doctor, as a wife, as a friend. Uh, yeah, it, it was an interesting experience. Let's just say that it's made me acutely aware of the fact that I was fortunate enough with my background in science and medicine to be able to go out and find high quality information to support myself get myself through treatment, you know, grueling six months of chemotherapy, eight hour operation, followed by a second operation, um, and come out of it actually, overall, I think I tolerate therapy really, really well. Mm -hmm. But that, and I could see women younger than me struggling, and I can see the long-term side effects that people were experiencing and how little actually we could offer people when there were no pharmaceutical options available. And so to me, that kind of thinking needed to stop. 
why should only someone like me who has the scientific background be able to access good quality information instead of, to be honest, a lot of rubbish out there on the internet, you know, a lot of people spouting things that don't really understand or giving people those generic protocols in cancer that nobody's checked for safety, for drug interactions, and to be honest, for personalization. Is it appropriate for that person to be having these things? So through my own experience, through the experiences of my patients, I'm very, very passionate about integrative oncology, and I'm fortunate enough to be the co-chair of BSAO, which is the British Society for Integrative Oncology. Wonderful. You've mentioned so many elements there that I want to dive into. So let's pick one. First off, I just want to say, um, I'm sorry that you had to deal with that breast cancer, but I'm so glad you've made it out of the end, the other end, and you're empowering patients to kind of take control of their own health and deal with their own issues. One thing that you mentioned was this bigger picture, and you were saying that people don't really know the full picture and what's going on. What did you mean by that? So I think my typical patient outside of the cancer side, so I see both complex multi-system cases in women's health and my cancer patients. So if I look at that side of my practice, my typical patient has had everything go wrong with them in a way. So they will present to me with maybe things like PMS, endometriosis, their thyroid is off and they have Hashimoto's disease, they have IBS on top of it. And actually they've been to see everybody and their grandmother and they've been to see two or three different consultants and no one's really looking at what the root cause is, what is the uniting physiology. And I think again, as, as doctors, we can be really excellent at treating acute problems and we're really good at recognizing and treating pathology but trying to get people to normal physiology is something that I think the medics find challenging. Because actually, if you ask someone, how do I get back to health? That's a big, that's a big question. Whereas actually, how do I treat my hypertension is a very small, tiny question we can answer with a number of medical things. But I think what I want to see is that when someone comes to me like this, and you know, I have very complex, you know, multi-system uh, autoimmune disorder patients as well. You know, they go and see the different specialists for each different autoimmune disease they have, <laughs> and they all have slightly different opinions and they're slightly different things. And actually, no one's looked at the gut immune axis. No one has looked at the vitamin D levels. No one's looked at what else is underlying all of their problems. And actually, if we look deeply and if we look at the uniting connection hubs in people's physiology and you give me a, a lever in the right pressure point and we can move the world I love that I love that you've definitely used that before <laughs> probably I think I just <laughs> say I like Archimedes so. <laughs> yeah no that's that's wonderful I love that we, we've spoken um not we but on the podcast before we've spoken that a lot of these conditions can kind of have the same underlying root cause i remember having dr tom o'brien on and he was saying the chain will break the the weakest link right and the one underlying root cause can cause so many different conditions and, and dysfunctions in a number of different people which made a lot of sense to me and that was my kind of first aha moment um for someone who's just hearing about your approach now, and you mentioned multi-system, it'd be good to dive into that. They might be thinking, I don't really know the evidence base behind this. I'm going to go with what my doctor says. How would you go about convincing them otherwise or that there is another way? 
That's a very good question. I think my, my patients do the convincing themselves because they see results really. But if we're looking at evidence, this is where when we're thinking about evidence, we need to look at each individual case and unpick the evidence for specific cases, specific interventions. Mm -hmm. There isn't one board study I can show you that can go, okay, this is great for it. And ultimately, this is why I talk about precision health. You know, precision health is a concept that's been popularized by the Stanford University. We see really good work coming out of there with a human white pilot, et cetera. And so what I talk about as precision health, it's about understanding that unique combination of factors that create health or disease, right? What is the genetic background and epigenetics that you might have acquired even in utero? Mm -hmm. And from your parents and from your grandparents, actually, because we know epigenetics will carry three, four generations sometimes. What is the, you know, the environment that you were brought up in and then you continue to be in in terms of environmental exposures and the whole exposome, you know, nutrition, lifestyle, what else are you doing, what other stresses that might be on the system. And like you said, then this unique combination of stresses on overlaid on this unique genetic background and epigenetic background will produce a specific pattern of mm -hmm. disease. And in terms of the evidence, we would want to look at it quite specifically. So say, for example, I have someone with PCOS or endometriosis. We will look at actually what is going on in their physiology at that time. We will look at the most recent research evidence. What are the key underlying pathologies in endometriosis? We know there's estrogen dependence. We know that there is an inflammatory component to it, for example, which is, and we know there's angiogenesis, which is the generation of abnormal blood vessels. This is just three off the top of my head. It's a complex disorder. You know, PCOS, again, complex disorder, not just the typical, oh, we've got high androgens and we can't ovulate and we have acne, but actually massive cardiometabolic component, increased risk of endometrial cancer because of lack of progesterone long-term. So this is what I mean about by looking at things individually is about saying, okay, in your, in your expression of PCOS or in your expression of endometriosis, let's take the best scientific evidence about the pathophysiological mechanism. Let's combine it with your current biochemistry and see what's going on with you right now. And let's come up with a treatment plan, a personalized precision treatment plan that would suit you. And then let's monitor it, let's do outcomes. At the clinic, we have all of this very much embedded in what we do. This is why patients complain about all the forms they have to fill in with me. But <laughs> I want to put, you know, my I want to write about what is actually happening in clinic. I don't want to just do something and have a case study and pat myself on, on the head. I want to generate research, observational research, so we can say to people that kind of personalized intervention works. And this is the outcomes we're getting. Amazing. I love that. Um, it's interesting the what you brought up about PCOS and your the way that you said it was like your expression of PCOS. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more, why you use that terminology? Because people think of PCOS, for example, as one single disorder. And as we know, there's at least four different subtypes of the different combinations of PCOS characteristics that someone has. And someone said, oh, if you don't have elevated androgens, you don't have PCOS. I'm like, ah, actually, subtype four doesn't have elevated androgens. And so your approach to this needs to be personalized. A little bit like, you know, when I think generally, whenever anything has a syndrome in it, to be honest, is just a symptom bucket or is just a manifestation bucket of signs and symptoms. 
So I don't much as much care about the label as I care about the actual person in front of me. I treat people, not protocols, right? That's what I do. So when I look at someone, I go, okay, is it that you are hyperandrogenic and that you're quite insulin resistant and your inflammation is particularly high? Or actually, are you presenting in a different pattern so that we are personalizing the approach? I'm not going to give someone something for their androgen control if they're actually the type 4 PCOS, which doesn't have elevated androgens. Yet in science and in medicine, we sometimes make our lives harder by studying, doing studies in all of the symptoms and all the buckets all together. So say, for example, you decided to do a, a study in IBS or chronic fatigue syndrome, or even in PCOS, and you put all the PCOS patients or all the IBS patients, no matter how they're presented, in the same bucket. And then you said, I'm going to do one intervention based on some kind of physiological endpoint that I think is going on. So you have automatically made the assumption the root cause and the physiology is the same across those buckets, which is simply not true. This is, I think, the reason why a lot of things like chronic fatigue syndrome trials are coming up with lots of really rubbish results. Mm -hmm. It's because actually no one's, un no one's really put people in categories and stratify the population according to the potential root cause of abnormalities. Um, you know, everybody with CFS has mitochondrial issues. No, they don't. Okay. You know, you can present as a CFS patient when you've got subclinical hypothyroid and you can present because you've got all sorts of other things going on. You can have um, CFS as a component of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, for goodness sake. So I think that both in clinical practice and in research, we have to get used to the fact that this complex chronic disorders need to have a personalized assessment and when we study them, we also need to put some certification in. And actually, we are seeing a slightly different way of approaching this in the precision oncology trials we're seeing right now. We're trying to stratify tumors, not just, oh, you've got colorectal cancer, but actually, which precise type? What is it that's the driver in this cancer? And can I target it with a precise intervention? And I think this needs to spread across the board. You know, I want to see trials that actually differentiate you know, normal weight PCOS to people who may be overweight and obese, they have different mechanisms, they need a different approach. I want to see people stratify IBS trials properly, they've started doing that more recently. I want to see CFS trials that are based on root cause analysis, not just everybody being lumped into the same group. Yeah, I completely agree <laughs> with you there. <laughs> I was just thinking that I've been looking at some of the vitamin D trials and some of the like approaches of actually giving supplementation vitamin D for a number of different conditions. Um, but they don't stratify or like separate the categories between who's deficient and who isn't. Are, are you measuring those vitamin D levels before supplementation and after? And sometimes studies don't do that. And I'm like, why? Why? Exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and this happens across the board, right? Um, women's health, oncology, yeah, it's absolutely it's, it's and same thing issue. with omega-3 trials, you know, omega-3 mm -hmm. trials are very similar. They're rife with this sort of stuff. They decided they've concluded something has no effect. I'm like, if you don't know omega-3 index when you started, you don't know where we ended up and you're giving people maybe the wrong dose, the wrong form of nutrients, which is my favorite. I think you and I both love these trials where they've tried to give someone a ridiculously low dose of a wrong form of a nutrient, they've concluded something doesn't work. I'm going, yeah, that's a massive leap. You know, in, in cancer, vitamin E is a you know, synthetic DL-alpha tocopherol, tocopherol is miles away 
from delta or gamma tocotrienols, you know, that yet yeah, this is the vitamin E complex, right? Mm -hmm. And actually people assume, yeah, right, vitamin E, the select study, bad, bad, bad in cancer. And I'm going, yeah, you haven't really understood the phytochemistry here. Yeah, exactly. The mixture of tocopherols and tocotrienols, et cetera. Like people don't even know they exist, right? They just think vitamin E is vitamin E. Not true. Not the case at all. Okay. How receptive, because you spoke about different, different modalities and ways of approaching a problem there. How receptive is the medical community to kind of your approach now at the synthesis clinic? Well, I think, I think they need to get to know us. Usually when people get to know us and they speak to me and they see usually the, the results that patients get mm -hmm. with coming to see us, that really the proof is in the pudding, right? If your patient is improving both, you know, subjectively and objectively on biochemical markers, that's when we convert people. So for example, we have excellent referrals with private GPs in the area. We have cost referrals with oncologists. We are very fortunate, but that's because we've built up that trust. They understand that our approach isn't, you know, let's throw everything at and see what sticks, right? Yeah. It's a rational scientific approach. They understand my background, the fact that, you know, I do hold expertise across, you know, medicine, mm -hmm. sciences, nutrition, you know, yoga, mindfulness, etc. So they understand that there is a good qualification background behind and that we have a multi-speed team who are also qualified to support people in different ways. So have an amazing physiotherapist on board who does scar work, who does medical acupuncture, Pilates-based rehabilitation. So again, it's about, I think, giving people confidence that what you're doing is science-based, that it is, yes, a new way of thinking about approaching those chronic diseases, but actually we are moving more and more with emerging science into precision health, into trying to do more personalized medicine. And we are recognizing that actually those chronic diseases, there isn't this simple thing with an acute disease, one quick cause, give an antibiotic, or you've broken a hip, let's give an operation, let's move on. You know, those chronic problems cannot be solved with an acute mindset. And I think because there is an increasing level of frustration in the medical community where something isn't supposed, isn't working as much as we do, as much as we wanted to for patients. And sometimes I think that generates the interest in looking outside the box, looking at outside just the pure pharmaceutical management. Because to me, I think there's something that, you know, I know Nutritank's been doing amazing work in this area, but we need to change medical education, not just to include lifestyle medicine, but to also get people refocused on how they tackle the problem, not with symptom A, disease B, drug C approach, not mm -hmm. a linear approach, but a network approach, because as humans, we are complex networks. And so actually understanding that network, being able to, like you said, pull on that one part of maybe the root cause and actually see it spread all across the physiological systems, that bit needs to be taught. Whereas I think at the moment, having done both of my degrees, the, the science degree in medicine at the same university, I honestly was shocked at how different the education was. As a scientist, way. you and yeah, as a scientist, you and I have basically been taught to be annoying toddlers going, why, 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 why? <laughs> yeah. Right? That's what we do. We as a scientist, we spend all our lives asking why, why is this and what's going on here? And becoming being curious, being curious about things. Was actually in medicine, it was a much more closed education. All that we were asking is what? What symptom? What disease? What drug? And no one really was interested in the why. And to me, as a scientist, that was 
you know, very surprising. I was flabbergasted by the fact that nobody really needed to know the why. Everybody was just trying to go, okay, where's my label? Where's my sticky plaster? Let's just go with it. And to me, the why is the fundamental bit because the why, if you can unplug the why, understand the why and work on it, that's how you unplug complex multi-system disease. I used to work in a pharmacist for a time when it's a little, little sidestep, little tangent. <laughs> I used to work in a, in a pharmacy for a time and I was interested in the different types of statins that could be prescribed. So this is in my younger years. And I, I didn't know why, <laughs> why people would be prescribed different types of statins. I was like, why can't one statin be used? And my friend recently told me this. He was like, well, sometimes it doesn't, one statin doesn't, doesn't work or do the job as well. And we use another one and then and the other one might not work. And then we just move on to the other one. And I was, thinking I was like well has anyone asked the question like why is that the case and maybe they have but the point being is my GP friend didn't actually know why he just knew Mm. what to do and that was really interesting to me because I was like well that's the first question I was I would ask is that why is this happening is there something else that we can do to support this person um so it's fascinating that you brought that up as well do you think that's ubiquitous across the medical spectrum I think it is. And I think that ultimately there's the, the curiosity needs to be fostered. And I think there's a lot of acceptance right now. This is the way things are. You know, I, I find it very difficult to accept that a 50 year old needs to be on 10 different meds. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I find it very difficult unless they have some really major, you know, genetic irreversible structural issues, whatever it is that we can't do anything about. I find it very difficult that we've normalized people beyond 10, 20, 30 meds, you know, I remember as a junior doctor sitting there writing out these drug charts, having to use two different, two drug charts worth for one patient and going, right, so number one, has anybody actually decided whether this is appropriate or have we just decided to start stacking drugs on top of each other without actually reviewing the need for continuation? Has anybody actually done a medical review? Number two, oh my goodness. And sometimes we would stop these medications when someone was particularly sick or actually at the end of life and people would perk up and I'm going well you're not no longer doing a whole ton of polypharmacy and actually then you introduce things in a much more rational way and people then become you know not at the end of life but when they've recovered from the acute episode when you rationalize their medications they walk out a very different person to someone who walked in on 20 meds and, and actually they have no idea why they're taking some of the stuff and to me that's a major problem it's it, it's great if they're being compliant or concordant with what the medical profession asks for them. But actually, there'll be lots of things, lots of assumptions being made in the medical system that people are taking stuff or people are being told what to do and they actually go off and do it. And we know that just doesn't happen. So actually having a really good discussion around medications, really rational use. And at the moment, we've got pharmacogenetics as well. The stuff that you were talking about with statins and with lots of other medications, there's certain genetic predictors that we can find for some medication classes at the moment that will say, okay, well, number one, you're much more likely to get a risk of myopathy with a statin if you have this particular you know, genotype on your pharmacogenetics, mm-hmm. or you are a lot less likely to respond to a specific cancer drug, even from the word go, before that drug wasn't even introduced and engendered any resistance in you. And so to me, that's again where precision health comes in. It's about making the best use of that complex information in genetics 
looking at anything from, you know, maybe looking at the risk aspect of chronic disease to predictors of response to yeah, predictors of non-response and toxicity for some of the medications we're using. And, and actually creating again, a personalized plan based on that. And statins are actually a prime example of it because I will quite often run pharmacogenetics on my cancer patients. And if they are on various medications, we then have a discussion with um, you know, oncology pharmacy of saying, okay, right, what do we think is gonna be the right medication? Do we need to dose reduce in consultation with oncology because someone is really going to struggle here? particularly if they're already physically deconditioned. And these are the discussions that are starting to happen. And I think that's what we need to really build on, that personalization of treatment rather than the kind of suck it and see approach, which to me is totally unscientific. <laughs> yeah, I would entirely agree. You know, it would be quite good actually to pivot the conversation slightly to focus more on cancer, because I think it's really interesting to hear what's your approach working with oncologists and what what is very similar to allopathic medicine and what is entirely different? You mentioned pharmacogenetics, which I don't think is used conventionally at all, um, but you might be able to tell me otherwise. It is used to a certain degree. So it's used where there's a risk of really significant or fatal reactions. So we do DPD, um, enzyme genotyping, for patients who are about to receive things like 5-FU-based therapy and colorectal cancer. Because if you do have a, an unfavorable genotype, the risk is of a fatal reaction. So we do do some genotype, it's very, very tiny, and it's very much you know, linked to a specific drug. Um, so I think that in terms of the difference in approaches, so I'm obviously not an oncologist, I'm a medical doctor who supports oncologists, works with oncology teams. I think that there are lots of oncologists who are now very open to working with integrative medicine doctors like me to provide that kind of additional care that they're not able to deliver either within the NHS or even the private sector. So, you know, my co-chair, Dr. Penike Hayoglu, cross-referred with nutritionists and other integrative medicine professionals, for example. And we've got other professionals who are interested, you know, Rob Thomas has been flying the flag for lifestyle medicine and oncology forever. So again, there are more people moving towards that. And then the other side of it is there are definitely a subpopulation of people who will just say no to everything. Okay, so the conventional oncology side of things, they will just go, I don't know about it, therefore it's not safe, therefore just stop doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a problem again, because actually, even if you don't know about something, automatically assuming something isn't safe or isn't okay is again a non-scientific, non-evidence-based statement. I remember talking to someone recently and they said, my doctor said that mistletoe is poisonous. I'm like, I'm not, we're not talking about eating mistletoe. <laughs> you know, injectable mistletoe treatment is a very different proposition to going off and eating, yes, poisonous mistletoe, you know, mm, miles apart. But it's about people kind of doing these soundbite judgments and like, go if you're not sure don't do a sound by judgment go off and research it ask some professionals in the area go to the guidelines go to pubmed do some proper research before going flat out no to everything or sound bites that are actually factually utterly incorrect because you haven't understood what kind of you know, medication or intervention is being given so i think and then there's the people in the middle who are actually open and curious they're not sure what integrative oncology is they don't really know what we do, but are able to have a conversation, 
we are obviously very safe on our side as a clinic. You know, we do all of the drug supplement interactions, any drug herbal interactions. We communicate with oncology pharmacy as needed if they have any questions. You know, again, we have patients with um, significant renal impairment. So in that case, it's involving the renal pharmacy people again to make sure everything we're doing is tallied up. But I think it's about, like I said, it's about actually encouraging people to be curious, to understand safety, to understand risk benefit properly, and to be able to refer appropriately to professionals who understand what they're doing. Mm -hmm. This isn't about either blanket yeses or blanket noes, right? It's about what is right for the person in front of you. Can we do something safe and effective to support them? Yeah, you, you mentioned a few different things there. I, I really like the idea of empowering people to take control of their health, but there's certain conditions where I think, well, basically all conditions I would always say, do make a lifestyle change or a dietary change under the supervision of a healthcare professional, right? Because there's certain supplements and nutrients which can actually have a negative effect on treatment, cancer treatments, or indeed that cancer. For example, exogenous antioxidant, high-dose antioxidants. I've been told, and you can maybe elaborate on this, that this can actually have a positive effect on cancer growth, something that we don't want. Um, could you explain why this occurs with regards to antioxidant use and what are the dangers that people need to be aware of if they indeed have a cancer and take supplements in general? Well, it's, it's such a complicated question. We can kind of touch on it. It's, it becomes very difficult. So of course. The, if I take, yeah, I'll take a few aspects of this and I'll probably discuss some specific things. So say, for example, vitamin C would be one of these examples where actually high dose vitamin C, when I mean properly high dose, IV vitamin C at 25, 50 grams, 75 grams given IV, is not an antioxidant anymore. It's a pro-oxidant, right? It's got a different, it's got a kill effect in a way. Mm -hmm. So yeah. actually it's, a, it's not your 500 milligrams you're gonna take in a capsule. And so this has a very different effect on physiology and that needs to be supervised by a medical professional, but it's like worlds apart from the kind of, you know, either dietary vitamin C intake or supplemental vitamin C intake, even three grams that you take, you know, in whatever it is, liposomal form and divided doses in the course of the day, very, very different prospect and has a different effect in cancer treatment. So the glutathione is one of those things where I think that practices can be very dangerous around cancer. Um, I think that glutathione is heavily involved in resistance to cancer therapy. Actually, cancer cells can upregulate the glutathione uh, creation pathways to be able to um, and recycling, et cetera, to be able to protect themselves from the stress of therapy, mm -hmm. uh, oxidative therapies like chemotherapy, for example. So I would never want to give someone exogenous glutathione. It's actually been shown to uh, be linked to resistance in ovarian cancer, for example, to a number of different therapies. And yet people sometimes come to me and they're on glutathione during chemotherapy and going, hold on a second, what, what is this all about? You know. If we want to support normal level of endogenous glutathione, you know, using things like your know, and broccoli sprouts in a dietary way is safe. We know it is safe because we've studied it. It's not going to interact with cancer treatment, but it is not the same as chugging down a whole ton of exogenous glutathione on top mm. of your therapy. That's to me is an unsafe practice. So 
uh, we always look at what's the dose, what's the nutrient, what's the chemo or radial, whatever it is the intervention is. And that's where the personalization really happens. And you're right. I think we there's pros and cons about kind of antioxidants in, in cancer full stop. But during chemotherapy, you normally say oxidative chemotherapy, you should avoid classical supplementation of antioxidants. Now, we know that there are non-classical antioxidants, such as curcumin, for example, mm -hmm. right, that can be used in combination with chemotherapy safely and effectively and can actually potentially improve survival in certain patients. So QFOX trial, where they combined FOLFOX and curcumin and figured out that actually it significantly extended survival in metastatic colorectal cancer patients. That's a non-classical antioxidant. That's a completely different ballgame. So again, understanding these different categories, which is why, you know, I continue to study every day. The amount of papers I have to read is crazy <laughs> to be able to keep on top of the research. What is safe? What is risky? What do we understand about the biochemical pathways and the physiology in the person? How does it then apply to the person in front of me? Because that's a difficult thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you're looking at trials and populations of people. How applicable is it to the person in front of me? You know, I have people come to me going, I've read this trial in, in vitro that, you know, this particular thing is really good for breast cancer. And I'm going, okay, right? So first principle is in vitro non veritas, right? That's Kerry Bone says, and I love this particular saying is don't believe in in vitro. <laughs> right. Because actually the amount of concentrations of, of, of nutrients, as you know, Ben, that you can pour onto a cell in a test tube will be very different to what's achievable in the human, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and the, the dose wise as well is just insane. So sometimes it'll be like, this is a thousand times the extract that you would receive, <laughs> you know, in a absolutely. clinical trial. And it's like, it's not, you cannot relate that to humans at all. You yeah. can't. And actually, that the problem is as well, I'm like, does your cell have a liver and a gut microbiome <laughs> and, and any of those things? Because guess what? You know, we, we know so much about how, for example, soy benefits vary depending on the gut, kind of, gut microbiome composition you have. And actually chugging people who are not echo produces full of soy really doesn't achieve the same benefit, for example. So this is where, you know, to me, cell studies are kind of look at, I go, they're very good at figuring out mechanisms. Beyond that, there's nothing else I can take away from this. Mm -hmm. Then we'll look at animal studies. You go, okay, now you're piquing my interest a little bit. At least you're doing some kind of physiological study. But I always say to you know, nutritionists that I train in, medical doctors that I train, you know, I'm interested in a six foot rat study right? The study in a human <laughs> or a five or a five foot seven, right? If you're talking about females. So, you know, I want to see what the physiology is in a human being, because to me, that's, that's the proof is in the pudding. We know there's not the same physiology in lab animals compared to humans. We know it's complicated. Um, and then really the challenge in the future is managing big data from some of these trials, managing the trials and saying, okay, can I really get all of that pharmacogenetics, all of that kind of nutritional genomic data um, as well. And can I combine that with the current physiology of biochemistry, as well as what we know about medications to come up with a big plan, right? And that's what at the moment I have to do manually, which takes up a lot of my time. <laughs> but in the future, I'm hoping that we can create systems you know, we can create systems and then use sensible machine learning mechanisms to teach us more so that we can then run properly rational trials based on the observational data we have that we're not poking around in the dark going from first principles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. I mean, how far do you think we're away from that? It seems like we're quite far away, but maybe not. Oh, good question. I think in some aspects in oncology, we are, we are getting closer. I think that there is, yeah, I think that we're relatively far at the moment. I think that the, the, the interest in the technology is to be that thing. The technology is there. The interest in combining different kinds of data, possibly not quite there yet. I think that at the moment, people kind of work in silos. In precision oncology, it's all about like, what's a tumor molecular makeup? And I'm like, yeah, okay, tumors in a person. How about what is the person doing as well? Yeah. So that's not, you're not a tumor legs, are you? You're not, this is not, this is again, this reductionist approach. You're trying to reduce people to tumor pathways. It's going to give you part of the data that you need to get someone through treatment and actually rationalize that treatment. And yeah, you know, if I've got someone who might maybe my, my precision oncology panel will say, yes, they're going to be fantastic for this IV chemotherapy. The person's on the floor and will not ever be able to tolerate the treatment. They have such a poor performance status. I can't enroll them in that fancy trial. That's it. Game's over, right? Actually, we need to be able to look at the whole picture again. We're coming back to what we started with. Mm. We need to be able to zoom in with the precision, see all of those little bits and pieces. And we need to be able to also zoom out and go, right, what's the big picture? Because otherwise, if you're messing around with you know, whatever it is, NTRK fusions or various other pathways, and you've forgotten the person is traumatized, underweight, cachectic, you know, can't tolerate any treatment, can't move out of bed, you've lost the plot. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that whole picture is uh, is so, so important. And I, I do think it often gets overlooked. I mean, you made such a, such a, a great point because you can find the best uh, treatment for a certain tumor which is cytotoxic for this tumor but what about how that patient is going to tolerate it and that mm -hmm. is basically like that should be the lens that doctors should look through of ever of every medical intervention right not only just how is it going to benefit the condition that i'm trying to treat but also how is the patient going to tolerate the the treatment that i'm using Absolutely. I think this is where I think there's work to be done. So I think in precision oncology, we're now becoming more and more sophisticated with the profiling of tumors and looking at different pathways, being able to be more sophisticated with trials where we actually personalize trial to the kind of mutations the tumor has mm. so that we're able to then tease out, okay, and be, become very personalized about what kind of oncology drug we're giving. But pharmacogenetic needs to be built in, right? And then I want to really see nutritional genomics built in. And I want to see kind of biochemical markers. And I want to see a global holistic needs assessment of the person coming in. That to me, that's interpersonal oncology. And that's actually beyond the prescribing of the oncology drugs. The rest is what we do at clinic at the moment. But it's very laborious. And I'm hoping, again, there's another idea in my mind, which will hopefully come to fruition in the next few years, is starting to build this, starting to build a system that can merge all these different kinds of data in a useful clinical dashboard. But for this, again, you need multi-spree teams. And to me, that's what we need to build overall in chronic complex women's health or cancer care. It's about looking at multi-spree team, not just within the NHS, but expanded expertise outside the NHS that you may need to bring in to be able to solve the case and give the person the right outcome. How do you view that when you say a multidisciplinary team, who do you think, who would be involved in that, in your perfect world? In oh. a perfect world, not your perfect world. 
Um, yes, if you take oncology, I mean, if we there, there's a core multi-split team that already exists in hospital, all yes. of which we pay, you know, we know that. I think on top of that, we would have a tumor molecular board, which will be able to look through all of that procedural oncology data in a sensible way and be able to come up with some treatment recommendations. Um, we would want to have pharmacy input, not just from the, the kind of oncology pharmacy perspective, but someone with good pharmacogenetic training. And so that we're able to bring that into the box. And then really we want kind of a, almost a synthesis like approach. We want you know, someone from nutrition side, we want exercise therapy, we want to be able to do some mind body work. So whether it's mindfulness, yoga, other approaches, music therapy, we want to be able to have a really good access to people so we can offer the toolkit and then see what actually sues the person in front of us. And of course, then I want to be able to, apart from see nutrition, exercise, sleep support and psycho-emotional well-being, then we might want to have adjunctive professionals who will cover some more specific aspects. So acupuncture being one of those things that we know is well evidenced in reducing chemotherapy-related nausea and vomiting, for example. It can also um, support us potentially with chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy and also look at the um, aromatase inhibitor arthralgia. So those muscle aches and pains that really cause patients a lot of trouble. So that's another thing that we might wanna bring in. But to be honest, how many people you have in your toolkit is almost kind of beside the point. Mm. The ethos needs to be there. I think that we need to say to people, you know, NHS at the moment is very much into personalized care plans for cancer. But they're not really personalized care plans per se. They are personalized medication plans or medical treatment plans, right? They kind of go, okay, we're going to first do new adjuvant chemotherapy. Then we do surgery. Then we do some adjuvant treatment, right? Or radiotherapy, whatever. That is it. That's considered to be a personalized care plan. Well, that's not, to me, that's not care. Because where is the holistic needs assessment? Where is prehab? Where is rehab? Where is the, the where is the, uh, the where is the assessment of the person's psychoemotional well-being in all of this? Because we know that trauma, not just related to the cancer diagnosis, but related to treatment, is a big problem right. in patients. In terms of and, outcomes, or well, it's outcomes and the suffering, the pure human suffering that people will see. So, thinking about like the other um, day, we talked um, to my clinical psychologist about this, and we discuss the fact that actually up to yeah, a third to 40% of breast cancer survivors who, who have traumatic symptoms during diagnose, diagnosis are still suffering four plus years afterwards. Oh, yeah. So this is something that to me should not exist in, in healthcare. We should be able to spot trauma, should be able to appropriately treat trauma because if we're thinking about it, think about outcomes and bringing me back to that. We know that trauma dysregulates a number of different systems in the body, including the HPA axis. So that's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And we also know that this, this dysregulation is linked to survival. Mm -hmm. So if you have cancer patients have a, particularly um, the studies have been done in specific cancer subtypes, you know, ovarian cancer being one example, but you have a flattened cortisol axis and then a bump up in the evening cortisol. So completely the opposite way around to how it's normally meant to be physiologically it impacts survival significantly. That's just something we should be looking at. You know, we shouldn't just be looking at, oh, okay, drugs impact survival. We know physical activity impacts survival. 
what kind of nutrition you have in bad survival, whether you actually get adequate sleep and, and have your cortisol in the normal regulation patterns impact survival. And that's the bit that I want people to understand the fact that we can look broader and it's not about making oncologists experts in this. This is not what we're expecting. You know, oncologists have so many papers to read and so many things to keep up with. It's about trying to say to people, let's think broader, let's, let's build the expertise both within and outside the NHS, let's collaborate across the NHS, charity, private sector, let's build pathways and let's then research those pathways, let's really increase the knowledge in that collaborative care going forward. Right, you've touched on loads there, I'm actually having to make notes to circle back to some things. Just to let you know. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to take a slight tangent, if that's okay with you. Go for it. Because um, I couldn't get it out of my head. When you said acupuncture, like I have friends that's taken acupuncture. I've done acupuncture before um, and it has had benefit. I don't know why. Mm. <laughs> the million dollar question. The yeah. million dollar question. So I was going to ask you, why does acupuncture <laughs> benefit I, to be cancer. honest, there's so many theories on this. And, you know, from the very old kind of gate control theory of pain to endorphin stimulation to all sorts of things. There's um, there's a really lovely uh, book or audio book you might want to listen to called The Spark and the Machine. It's written by a medical doctor and acupuncturist. And that's got an embryology angle of why acupuncture works. Oh, so actually, I don't think anybody has the answer to it is very basically that's my answer i think that there are certain things that people have investigated such as release of a normal kind of endorphins and encephalins and some of the natural painkillers that the body already uses for example but not all acupuncture um, effects can be explained this way we for example know that having acupuncture at the right time into the ivf cycle can significantly improve the fertility rate with ivf but definitely not about necessarily having pain control or, or any of that side of things. So there's clearly more work that needs to be done. And I don't think anybody has the answer to it. What I would say is that clinical efficacy wise, I find it very valuable. In fact, I'm currently studying TCM acupuncture because I need to add more to my toolkit as I usually of, do. Of course, <laughs> of course, of course. I was gonna, um, sorry, yeah. please finish. Uh, no, I, I think to me, I think this is a great mystery in a way of what, what exactly does acupuncture do. But again, I think we need probably multidisciplinary teams to figure this out. We probably need a bit of neurophysiology, a bit of endocrinology. You know, we need that multi-system approach to actually sit down and figure out what happens. But to me, it shouldn't prevent us from using, you know, some a method that is safe in the hands of a qualified practitioner to be able to support people where there is evidence of clinical benefit. So to me, there is evidence of clinical benefit across certainly nausea and vomiting, some of the other outcomes in breast cancer, and it's been recommended in the SAO-ESCO joint guidelines for breast cancer within certain settings. So to me, we should be using it as well as trying to get this multidisciplinary team of amazing scientists all across from, you know, from China to the Western world to see if we can figure this out. <laughs> No, I love that. I've, I, my question was actually going to relate to the amount of things that you specialize in or certainly know about and are trained in because I would find it, I mean, when I speak to people, I always think like, oh, you're adding more tools to your toolkit. But then I'm thinking, how do you stay on top of everything as the evidence base moves? 
So this is more of a question about how do you cope with <laughs> with the multiple it's different tricky. tools you use. It's definitely very, very tricky. And I think that I I think that the way that I approach my training um is sometimes that the fact that I'm going to use it in clinic on a practical basis, and sometimes so that I've added enough knowledge base to understand how it fits in within the overall integrative care pathway and that I'm an excellent referrer for people. So for example, at the moment, because I'm a crazy person, um, <laughs> I am currently doing a master's in precision cancer medicine at Oxford University. I'm doing a postgrad diploma in health research and uh, TCM acupuncture and herbal medicine course um, and yoga therapy. So that's my eclectic mix of fun things to do. <laughs> The listeners won't be able to see, but I just screwed up my face a lot there. <laughs> just how, how how do you manage that? I mean, you really have to compartmentalize. I don't I do, think I'll be I able do. to have to. I don't think I could focus on that many different things in terms of training and medical education as well as practicing. I think it, it's it's definitely tricky. I'm not. I'm not, don't suggest anybody does it. Frankly, <laughs> I think that it's it's it, it it mainly uh, most of it is part time. Obviously, it, courses last you know two three years, so that means that I'm able to integrate them. But to me, I would say I'm not going to give everybody the therapy that maybe I'm training in. So say I'm not going to be able to deliver everybody's acupuncture in clinic or yoga therapy. Mm-hmm. But what I want to learn about you know, from a practical perspective is that I need to know when to use those therapies with a patient in front of me, how to safely refer and how to have an informed multidisciplinary discussion with the practitioner on the other end. Because my role as an integrative medicine doctor is to be the hub, is to coordinate some of those things. So say, for example, someone's seeing an acupuncturist, as well as one of my nutrition team at the clinic, as well as the normal oncology side of things and the physio. Right. My role as a coordinator is to integrate all this information into a, a usable plan and to be able to say, OK, this is good right now. You are still struggling with those side effects. Let's switch this to this or let's try a different approach to managing it. And so to me, yes, I am a bit of a knowledge map by and I love doing different things. But I think it's not about necessarily with me saying, OK, you're right. I will know everything about yoga therapy and I keep up with the, all the updated research within it. I have other professionals and a great referral network that I can use for this. And we can have those discussions. I can go to them and say, okay, yes, what's the latest in X, Y, and Z? Right, yeah. But to me, I keep the big picture. Like in integrative oncology, yes, there's tons of paper to, papers to read. There's more than I can handle, definitely. But then if I don't know about something or I think I've missed something, then I will go off and speak to someone within that field who just does this day in and day out. Mm-hmm. So scar work, you know, I'm not going to be an expert on scar work, right? I know how to refer to my wonderful physiotherapist for it. And I know roughly what the benefits might be, but I'm not the expert. And it's about acknowledging where your boundaries of expertise lie. But to me, I think understanding this from the inside out as a practitioner like I'm a registered nutritional therapist as well as hopefully I'll be a registered acupuncturist and I'm a registered yoga teacher. It really helps me from the inside out have a very practical knowledge. So when I'm speaking to someone, I'm talking their language. And that makes me also hopefully a good multidisciplinary team leader. Because if I know what language you're speaking and what framework you're using, I can integrate you to the team in the right way and help bring out the best of the therapy for someone. I completely under, understand that. Um, I remember a while ago, there was I was at a conference and we were talking about integrating nutrition into the medical curriculum. And there was a pushback from a certain group of people saying that 
it should stay with nutritionists. And I was thinking, this is not the right way of thinking. And I think it's come full, full circle now and everyone agrees that it's a good thing that you should have nutrition in the medical curriculum. Because if you know the benefits of nutrition, then you're more likely to refer to people which specialize in it in general. And I think you made an excellent point where saying like, that's what you do. You have the bigger picture. You're trained in so many different modalities. So not only can you use them, but if it extends what you know, or how do, how do I... Um, articulate this if you think it needs extra care for example then you just refer to someone else who has greater expertise in that area yeah i think that's brilliant i've never really thought of it that way before how in this field do you see people more or less thinking the same way that you do now that you need a bigger picture approach or do you think there's pushback and reluctance to change there's definitely reluctance to change. I think that there's, I mean, we can we can split across the different areas. I guess from the medical perspective, we've the whole the whole concept of medicine has become incredibly subspecialized, right? We have subspecialties within specialties, you know. So actually, it's all become very compartmentalized, and 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 actually, there are very few generalists left in medical the medical system. Okay, probably geriatrics and pediatrics being the two relatively generalist bits of medicine, but otherwise it becomes very, very tricky. And so I think that's that there that big picture gets lost when we become so specialized. And you know, people will say, oh, but the GP, and I'm like, well, the poor GPs have so much to do. You know, what are you going to do in a sort of eight to 10 minute consultation? Plus also, are you going to have the capacity to integrate input from all those multiple consultants? To be honest, not always in your daily life, you'll be able to say, okay, right, you guys have done your specialist with excellent, I'll carry on. You tell me what to do and I'll, we'll carry on doing it. So I think there is a reluctance because people say, but I need to re become really expert in this bit. And to a certain degree, for example, integrative cancer care, you have to be a good generalist as well as understanding cancer because people, I often remind my nutritional therapists or doctors about this when I train them, I say, just because someone has cancer doesn't mean they can't suffer from all the other diseases known to man. Yes. <laughs> so let's not forget that just because someone has come to you with, say, colorectal cancer, they can't have a small intestine bacterial overgrowth or celiac or whatever mm -hmm. else might be going on in the general world. In fact, there's more to learn and more, more to handle because you have all the general problems plus cancer on top and the cancer treatment on top. So I think there is... You can't be a, a generalist for everything, though, that we have to acknowledge this. Like I, for example, don't cover men's health. You know, this is not something that I know a lot about because my specialty is women's health. And so I'll refer. But I will know how to spot the right therapist or the right, the right particular input. And then I'll use my generalist knowledge to say, OK, this is maybe the kind of input you need for what you've asked me about. Mm -hmm. So I think there's there's there's. There's pushback on the whole person or whole picture thinking versus especially there's also this pushback in the MDT setting is, is our NHS MDT is enough. We don't need any more, right? We right. don't need anybody else. This is it. This is the, the, the bulwark of all healthcare. That is it. And actually, I think that that's a narrow-minded view. I think we need to think broader. We can't expect the NHS to deliver everything. That's not sensible of, sensible of you to take in the fact that we have a publicly funded healthcare system. Mm -hmm. The fact that we need to know that what we receive in the NHS is cost-effectiveness driven, not pure effectiveness driven, cost-effectiveness to the whole population driven. 
And as we know, that makes the priorities different, right? When we're thinking about cost effectiveness for a whole population versus what's going to be effective in a person, mm -hmm. that's a very different burden of um, proof and burden of thinking about these things. But thinking about the MDT side of things, we kind of said, okay, well, these are the kind of all the registered professionals that work within the NHS, you know, General Medical Council, Nursing and Midwifery Council, you know, Healthcare Professional Council, HCBC, etc. And we kind of say, okay, everybody else is outside, outside the box, right? But actually, I think to me, that is very narrow-minded. We need to think about the fact is, we, we, what we can deliver in a public health service is maybe the core, but the core is not the whole, right? It's otherwise it's thinking about, I can just pierce through the hole and go, this is it. This is the only thing we're gonna do, no. We need to say, how do we involve charities? You know, we've got Penny Bon UK, who's an, they're an excellent integrative cancer care charity that have a lot of free resources. How do we collaborate with the private sector appropriately? And then I would love to be able to eventually get NHS care teams into clinics like ours and train them so that I can have NHS professionals delivering some of the integrative care counseling, talking about nutrition, physical activity, sleep, psycho-emotional well-being, being able to screen and refer and spot. But to me, to think that you can deliver everything within the, within the publicly funded healthcare system is quite a narrow-minded view. We need to think outside the box. We need to put the patient in the middle of it, in the front of their healthcare plan, and say, okay, this is what I can do for you, for the NHS. If you want to support your own health and well-being, here are some resources. If you feel you would benefit from extra input and extra time, here are some specialists you might want to consult. Something that I would like to, to speak to you about, actually, is like when someone comes to see you, like where are they on their journey? And you're probably going to say they can be anywhere on their journey, which is which is fine. OK, so what's the most appropriate time for someone to come to see you? That's probably going to end up with the same the same answer. I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> Good question. I think I'll answer kind of both at once. So okay. most of the time, people will come and see me, certainly within the cancer setting, when they're going through treatment, okay? Most of the time, vast majority of people are going through active treatment, whether it's chemotherapy, radiotherapy, immunotherapy, targeted therapies, wherever they are. And so a proportion of patients come after they've had their primary disease controlled and they want to look at recurrence risk, for which counseling within the NHS is pretty much non-existent. So what I'd love to see more of, and it's a very much smaller proportion, is people come to me, number one, before they got diagnosed, or at the point of diagnosis, before they even undergone surgery or any other kind of curative therapy, so we can optimize people before the treatment they receive in the first place. And that's what I'd love to see more people being aware of integrative oncology and integrative medicine. Say, so, okay, I choose to be empowered. I want to to feel like I have agency with this. I'm not gonna hand over all my power. And then you know, the typical advice again, which is utterly non-evidence-based is go home and rest and eat whatever you like. And you know what, you and I could you know, debunk both of those statements till the cows come home. None of them are evidence-based. So what I would love to see is actually at that point when people are maybe given diagnosis, I'd love for them to be able to say, and there are things you can do to support yourself. This is the medical plan. We just need to give people the option of taking some of the control back in a moment where they've been given a diagnosis that's ultimately disempowering. 
that yeah, all of your agency, all of the control, all of that's been taken away from you in the moment that someone gets told they have cancer. So being able to, in that conversation, say, this is the medical plan, but also there are things you can do to support yourself. And let us know if you want some information about this, gives people an opening, a chink, mm -hmm. and they may choose to engage or not engage. And that's fine because people come to it at different points and in different headspaces in their treatment journey. So, but having that option, I think to me, changes the conversation completely. It's not about we're gonna do something to you to cure your cancer or to treat your cancer. It's about, let's be a team. There, is, there are things you can do to support yourself. There are things that we're gonna be doing with you, for you to be able to treat the cancer. So let's change that conversation. Let's put the patients in the middle. Let's give them some support and some tools to be able to support themselves. Brilliant. And in terms of like looking at it from a lifestyle medicine lens, things that people, like you mentioned, can do themselves, um, are there any big, real big factors that you see in clinic which are ubiquitous across all people with cancer or most of them? Well, the, the four core things really that we consider is you know, nutrition, physical activity, sleep and psycho-emotional well-being. And within those, we also talk about sleep, drugs so and alcohol and smoking as well so they're kind of the other bit is about harm reduction or minimization of toxic toxic load from that so they are the core things that we talk about i think if we can take care of those fundamentals of well-being actually the number of side effects that we can manage so much better and the tolerance of treatment will massively increase in fact we know that from work with esophageal cancer patients for example that you could actually downstage some esophageal tumors by using exercise in a prehab setting. I did not know that. That's incredible. Absolutely. So they did this prehab study and they found in a structured prehabilitation program with exercise being the main component that they actually downstage tumors and tumors shrank compared to the control group. So by the time they actually went to surgery, you can imagine that has a major impact on how extensive is surgery and how extensive complication rate you're going to get from that so it's it's absolutely massive and that's what we should be doing we should be counseling or offering information and say that's available colorectal cancer survival um post uh, outcomes post-surgery again are also affected by prehab so we know that it works and we know that integrative oncology again when i'm asked about evidence for this we know that there are, there are a number of different observational studies that have been released from integrative oncology centers that show that you know, improved engagement in integrative oncology increases survival for breast cancer patients and gynecological cancer patients and improves symptom control. So to me, the question isn't why should we be doing this is why not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's fascinating that you said this tumor shrank with exercise prehab. Um, I'm just thinking like what time span are we looking at here? Are we looking at like four months or? Good question. I can't remember the details of the study off the top of my head, but I would assume that if it's a prehab study, they turned not into run more than three months. So I would assume there will be around about a three months time point, but I'd have to go back and have a look. Yeah. I mean, I will link to it in the show notes if we can, if we can track it down. I think that'll be a Definitely. hugely fascinating study. And also you mentioned Penny Braun and things like that before that Yester Life is also a wonderful charity, which I'll link, link in the show notes for everyone. I know we're coming up on time, Nina, but it has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Um, I asked three questions to everyone that comes on the show and the first one is what is the most impactful health change that you have made in your life and why 
nutrition, death and death at that point. It's very hard. It's very difficult from all of my repertoire of things to pick. You know, you forced me to pick one. Um, but I think nutrition has been hugely impactful for me. And um, this is the first modality I have added to, to my therapeutic toolkit and it's still my original love. And the reason why is because to me, it just spans across everything. I think about how I function mentally, physically, emotionally based on nutrition. I think it changes everything profoundly. It changes epigenetics. It's, it trans can transform us. Uh, and I think working on this can be a really good foundational keystone for people. Wonderful. Thank you. And the second question is, how can healthcare become more integrated with the kind of modalities that we talked about today? To me, I think it's about openness, curiosity and building good referral networks. That's, that's to me, the key thing. And what we hope to do, certainly with the British Society for Integrative Oncology, is to build across the three competency networks. So we want to talk about clinical practice, having good, safe, competent clinical practice in integrative oncology, building those extended multidisciplinary care teams, sharing expertise, creating best practice guidelines. Then it will be looking at education. So how do we educate people around integrative oncology? How do we put in rapid interventions within the NHS or group interventions? You know, group exercise, group yoga therapy, mm -hmm. you know, group uh, health coaching to help people implement those, those changes that we've asked them to do as a part of their care plan. So to me, education is very, very cool. And we are looking at doing some of the, building some of the post-grad education programs around that. And then the, the third bit is research, of course. That's the other bit that we need to really shore up. I want to see sensible research and by sensible i mean it's not about the randomized control trial all the time mm -hmm. because randomized control trial is is a specific tool to be used in a specific setting when studying a specific intervention we need better trials that assess complex interventions actually we need, we are starting to look at things like n of one trials right we're looking at things that are very much more stratified or personalized and i want to see more research in, 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 and more proper human research in integrative oncology that is guided again by a multidisciplinary team. So we avoid wasting resources on wrong doses, wrong forms of nutrients or wrong herbal preparations or wrong acupuncture being administered. You know, we need to get the experts in the field, bring them to oncology, get the patients, get the patient and public involvement into this. So we can truly troubleshoot the clinical pain points for patients, not just sit there in our labs and kind of do the thing that we're really, really interested in. I think we have to keep a global framework of what's needed out there. Love that. Couldn't agree with you more. Um, I have one more question to ask you, but before I ask it, can you please tell the listeners where they can find you and what exciting projects you have coming up? So you can find me two places. My personal website is drninafullerchevelle.com and Synthesis Clinic is where I do all of my one-to-one -one work with my amazing team. And you can also go and visit bsio.org.uk and that's the British Society for Integrative Oncology. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I will link to everything that we've spoken about in the show notes. So the last question is, can you please provide the listeners with three quick tips? And I know you've given many already to help improve their health and well-being from today. 
So if we're looking at someone who may have been diagnosed with cancer, let's focus on this one rather than trying to get everybody in. But to be honest, it'll be applicable across the board. I think to me, focusing on nutrition, focusing on a high phytonutrient anti-inflammatory diet is really, really important. I think it actually spans across cancer to women's health and a number of other aspects. And it's also agnostic from the point of view of, you know, trying to fiddle around with macros, which all need to be personalized, or thinking about how much various sources of protein you're going to consume. So good, high phytonutrient, whole food-based anti-inflammatory diet is a cornerstone. So to me, that's one thing. Second bit is movement of any kind. And people will ask me, what kind of exercise is the best exercise? I'm like, anything you that gives you joy and that you're going to do consistently. Mm-hmm. So find something and vary it, play with it. It's, we're meant to have playful movement and not take you so seriously, slogging it out in the gym all the time. <laughs> so two, two is movement, definitely. And my third one is psycho-emotional well-being. Um, and that will sort of include sleep and at the same point, but tune in to what you need. That's really important. I think we've become very good at not listening to our bodies and our emotional needs. And to me, trying to build a framework, an emotional toolkit, whether it's mindfulness, time in nature, breath work, yoga, whatever it is that you enjoy, qigong, build yourself a toolkit that helps you really support your emotional well-being. And I think that just having those three things can really massively support anybody going through cancer treatment or looking at reducing their recurrence risk. Brilliant. Nina, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I've enjoyed every second of this and I do hope that we could do this again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. I look forward to another conversation. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or our website, and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for all the editing, and thank you all for your support.